0: back to the What's Your Want More podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Harris, and we're going to test a new segment in episode 63 here called The Week in Review. And the reason we were kind of debating this is there's a lot that went on in the last week, not in the form of just general news, but economic news. And then we had some great news that came in as well about the podcast. And I'll start with that. You know, we were named a top 10% global podcast amongst all podcasts, um, you know, internationally. And then we just got news yesterday that we are top 5%. We made a significant jump um, over the course of the last 30 days. And that's thanks to you guys. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to our audience. Um, the support and encouragement that you guys are giving us not only by listening, but the feedbacks, the text, the stopping by the studio, to letting us know what you think of it, letting us know what other people are thinking of it has been amazing. And it's really what drives us here at the What's Your More podcast to continue to do these twice a week you know, it does get tiring every now and then when you're like, man, I got to do another one this week and another one this week. But when you get these little, these little wins and you know, this is a big win, but the little wins are when someone's like, Hey, great job. Really appreciate that. Or Hey, shared your episode with my father-in-law. Things like that mean the world to us. And uh, I just I can't thank you guys enough. That's the that's the drive and support we need to keep making this uh, hopefully a top one percent podcast. So very stoked about that. Thank you guys again. Um, you know couldn't have done it without Charlie Walker, our great producer, my co-host Daniel Halverson, and Alex Stewart. Thank you guys so much for being a standing co-host on this, and then to all of our guests. This has just been an amazing feat. So thank you very much. But let's let's kind of jump right into uh, the, the weekend review. And as I go from the hey the thank yous, uh, I kind of thought this was funny. You know I'd call this segment now a word from our haters uh, online. Because uh, boy, did we get some people really ticked off about that Fed Now episode that we did? You know, uh, when Charlie and I put that together, the the idea behind it was that there was just so much false pretense online about the Fed Now and what it meant. And boy, did that false pretense show up on some of the online uh, comments that we got? And, and I, I chuckle because I mean, people—you know—they they have their opinions. They're very proud of them, and uh, unfortunately, some of them are flawed. I mean, they're allowed to have it. It doesn't just because their opinion doesn't mean it's right. Just like because my opinion doesn't mean it's right. But the facts are the facts in this case. And uh, you know, some of the commentaries that we got were uh, were pretty funny because you know, we had this, this underlying tone that the United States government was taking over your bank account and that the United States government was, uh, monitoring what you spend your money on to the point to where they're going to tell you what you can't spend your money on. And, uh, you know, this, 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 this ideology just kind of like blows my mind here because I'm like, really, you you think that like that the Fed now, which is going to be a 24 seven 365 transfer system, it's not a coin. It's not a digital monetary system. It's a platform. It's like an Amazon for transferring wires back and forth and, and potential ACHs and potential future transactions that could, you know, maybe one day involve real estate. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with your checking account, uh, has nothing to do except for the fact that the money enters your checking account and leaves your checking account. And for those that were all, you know, fired up about what the government is and isn't going to do and monitoring and what they can and can't tell you to spend your money on, like, you do realize in 1978, there's a Right to Financial Privacy Act that was passed. And there are steps and regulations that have to happen for any type of federal government organization to get into your checking account. Now, let's kind of back up a little bit here because the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970 does give the government a little, you know, does require banking institutions to keep records and have programs and have the necessary things of of, of to report. But in the U.S. Patriot Act in 2001 kind of just opened up the whole gate. It kind of did like a byproduct of that Bank Secrecy Act to where, you know, the OCC really can monitor and deem any bank account they want at any time that they think has any type of illicit activity, uh, any type of terrorist activity, any suspicious activity. I mean, the reality is what I'm trying to say is if the government wants to look at what you're spending, they've been doing it since 2001. So this isn't anything that's new. It's just kind of, um, I, I, like I said, it's it's a lot of a uh, uprise of people thinking that this Fed now is what's causing that. The Fed now is not causing that. It's not even going to be a part of that. It is literally a transfer system back and forth. So, um, But hey, keep the comments coming because it allows us to address them and uh, definitely. Uh, fuels the fire for us here, and and hopefully we can continue to change the narrative, and more importantly, bring the facts to the table on that. So let's talk a little bit about the debt ceiling. Did a whole episode on that, and uh, we kind of broke down, you know, the dysfunctions of both sides of the table. You know, your Republicans and your Democrats, and why they can't get along. And Lord help us, we can't determine the word compromise and even use it towards something. But it appears we do have some sort of compromise, and you know, right in the nick of time, as if we didn't think that would happen. Um, it was almost like it was already pre-planned, But I will tell you this. Uh, the compromise is kind of funny because the, the, the title of the compromise, uh, and I think I looked it up, is the, the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. Now, tell me uh, after we discuss here briefly about what was agreed upon, how humorous that is. So essentially what's happened is both sides have agreed to suspend the debt ceiling and the limits of that debt ceiling through 2025. So we're not really passing a budget. We're not capping the debt ceiling. The House has approved to suspend it. Now it still has to go to the Senate, but it's probably, you know, it's, it's looks like it's going to get approved probably by today's Thursday, probably by tomorrow, Friday, but you're going to suspend it for two years now uh, with, with no ceiling. So we know currently Currently, the budget's $2 trillion, so let's just assume, right, and this is a bad assumption, but let's assume it stays $2 trillion for the next years and, and doesn't go up. That's a $4 trillion pass that you're going to add back onto the national deficit. Now, I know we're hearing all this stuff about budget cuts and hearing all this money being saved at $2.1 trillion, but again, I'll go back to that's over a period of time that's not in one year, and even though that's being touted right now as the largest uh, you know, reduction it doesn't. That's over ten years. Again, that's over a period of time, not in the one year that two trillion dollars is being spent. And then I think we all agree that the budget only goes up; it doesn't come down. So I think four trillion dollars is probably a little bit of an underestimate. You could probably, you know, definitely go above that. I don't, I, to what measure I don't know, but it's definitely going to be more than that. But let's go back to that title: Fiscal Responsibility Act of Twenty Twenty. That is just as humorous as hell to me because that is the opposite of fiscal responsibility. Uh, not putting a cap, not putting a ceiling, and just kicking the can down the road to 2025. Why do you think they're kicking it down the road to 2025? Well, it's obvious as can be. 2024 is an election year for not only members of the House, members of the Senate, as well as the President of the United States. And what is what is going to be brought up in all of these debates and in the election run? What you voted for, right? That's what they always bring up. What did you vote for? How easy is it to sit up in front of the American people and go, well, "I voted for the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023"? Most people aren't even going to dive into that act or even remember what it is. It's like the Inflation Reduction Act. What? The Inflation Reduction Act actually created more inflation, and so it's almost like these titles were given just to just to to give uh, the, the the members of House and the senators and. President to go back to their constituents and go, well, I voted for this. This is the name of it. And in this case, the Fiscally Responsible Act, the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. Uh downright hilarious uh name title only. But the reality is it did get passed or by the House again. We've got to go through Senate, which will probably be done by Friday. Today's Thursday. But let's take a look at, you know, one of the byproducts of this, which I think is interesting, is there was a there was a couple of, you know, basically budget. Constraints, right? Where the the budget in certain areas can't go up. This capped at one percent unless it's military. And then another byproduct were some programs that kind of got cut. And one of the major ones that I saw come back from that is the student loan debt payment starts back on October thirtieth of twenty twenty three. Now let's think about this. As of March twenty twenty, student loan debt has not had to be paid back. It's kind of been frozen as a moratorium. That's three years ago. And by the time we get to August, that's three and a half years ago. Like, do you think people that have a budget have budgeted for this new payment to be reinstalled back into their household budget after three years? The answer is probably no. They probably thought that that was completely forgiven. This now doesn't take away the twenty thousand dollars that you know if you're under one hundred twenty-five grand income that you're going to get to still you know not have to pay that back, but there are going to be payments and the interest starts accruing on August 29th. This needs to start being talked about. And, you know, if you have student loan debt, be aware that those payments are going to come due on there. And that's one of the byproducts of this fiscally responsible act of 2023. So, uh, again, uh, that ought to be interesting. And, I, you know, I kind of have a forecast on that, you know, as we've talked about consumer spending and we've talked about the count of credit card debt. Daniel Alverson and I did a whole episode on the default rate and what's going on, and one of the things we pointed out was on the 90-day defaults, which are considered at that point very delinquent, and then the 30-day delinquencies that are happening, the, the lowest metric, the thing that has fallen off the cliff that's not delinquent at all in any category, guess what? Student loan debt. Well, that's pretty obvious based on what we just explained. They haven't had to make a payment. What happens when the September and the October readings come out on that, are we going to see significant delinquency on student loans, almost as almost as if it can't be afforded or a potential rebellion? I don't know. But remember, we'll do an episode on student loan debt and why you do not want to miss those payments because remember, if it's the federal government you're paying back, which in this case for 43 million Americans it is – you don't want to have late payments or default debt on that. And there's things that could hurt you in your future, buy, excuse me, future buying power down the road, whether it be a house, maybe even a car. There's some things that you definitely want to consider before you make that decision. Yo, Thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs, they take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family, and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at BOEMortgage.com. com. because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Let's get into the economic news for the week. It's been a busy week on the economic front. Rarely do we see in a five-day window this much economic data shoved in, which is kind of why we're doing this weekend review episode. But it started last Friday, and it's going to go Friday to Friday. But last Friday, we got the PCE data in. Um, and, you know, this is the Federal Reserve's favorite form of inflation as far as what they measure. And so for for we've talked about this numerous times on the show. We want to see that number come down because the more that number comes down, the less likelihood of the Federal Reserve continuing to raise short-term interest rates, thus applying pressure to the financial system. Well, it came in higher than expected. And I feel like this is a theme that we continue to hear. And we can break this down into, you know, what's leading the pack on that. You know, we've done it on CPI. Where we talk about shelter. But the reality is what led the pack on this is consumer spending. Consumer spending makes up the majority of the PCE. So what's happened? Consumer spending is at an all-time high credit card debts at an all-time high. So this kind of makes sense because the cost of goods are also at an all-time high. So you're having to pay more to get the same. So the spending rates going up, you might not necessarily be buying more, but you're spending more on the same items. And so then that becomes a debt financing issue because people, you know, if they can't afford to live, they're gonna put it on credit cards. and that's what's happening here. You can see it. And it's, it, we're very close, very, very close to being at that $1 trillion just in credit card um, number. And it's, it's suggesting that, you know, there's a potential issue there. You know, we've talked about this consumer finance potential storm that's brewing. It appears to be getting bigger and bigger out there. And so as we look at the consumer spending, and I go back to that student loan debt, if you're spending more, you're financing more, your bills are going up more, add in a student loan payment on August 30th, You can't tell me that's going to be a good thing, and you can't tell me that the people that have not been making that payment at that point over three and a half years were expecting that payment would ever be worked back into the budget because I don't think that's exactly what's happened here, and I do fear that's going to be an issue um, for some of those 43 million Americans. Also got the FHFA index and the Case Schillinger index this week. Why are those important? Because those are index that measure home prices and essentially is kind of what the uh, government turns to as far as FHFA to determine loan limits because do we have high enough loan limits to offset the rise in appreciation of properties? And so one of the first times we've seen the Case Schillinger index come down and it was down 1.1, suggesting that maybe properties are flattening in some areas, potentially slightly deteriorating in some areas and up in others. But then the FHFA, one came in, and it was up 0.6 on the month. So you've got one that's down and one that's up. And so what I like to do is dive into that and say, why could that happen? Well, the thing about the Case Schillinger Index is it measures cash purchases, whereas the FHFA does not measure cash purchases. And I'm gonna pull a graph up over here and show you the kind of the, the distinction here. But uh, Alex over at Market Distillery did a great graph the other day on the Case Schillinger metros and then the United States as well as all of Florida in there. And he showed where the United States was up 102, or excuse me, the index was at 102, Jack's was up 143, Orlando was 214, Miami was 209, and excuse me, Tampa 209, Miami 200. And one of the things I asked him was, hey, listen, Can you do me a favor and do one on the FHFA because it removes the cash transactions? And if the FHFA was up 0.6, what that could suggest is that the old adage cash is king, meaning that if you have cash, you could probably negotiate a lower price point. And I do believe that could be the case between those two distinctions. There's so why one might be down and one might be up. And so that also could suggest on the flip side of the coin that FHFA, that index being up, meaning that if you're financing a property, you may either a be paying a higher purchase price because you're financing and closing costs, or you're asking for seller concessions at some capacity. So uh, I'm looking forward to Alex's breakdown of that and when we get a chance to see that. So those two indexes were cash that came out this week as well. And then we had a couple of manufacturing indexes that came out. Uh, we had the Chicago PMI come out as well as the ISM manufacturing, which is the Institute for Supply Management. Now, normally we don't talk about these indexes on here at all, but I wanted to bring them up because they're continuing to deteriorate and come down. And as they come down, the Chicago PMI measures the Chicago region of the manufacturing index. And what we want to see on that is something above 50 because 50 represents an expansion in that region. Anything below 50 represents a constriction. And if we're continuing to come down, which we did – The Chicago manufacturing was down from 48.6 to 40.4, suggesting more constriction in that region. And then the ISM Manufacturing Index, again, which is a survey of 300 manufacturing purchasers, uh, basically 300 purchasing managers from uh, manufacturing companies around the country, that was down as well and below 50, once again indicating a constriction. Now, the one thing I do see about that is two things could be happening. Number one, that could be less jobs. Could be. Number two, it could be less goods being bought, therefore giving a limited amount of supply, which could also include basically a price increase. So it's interesting to see that that could be adding to the inflation model in the background as the one we're trying to tackle. Had the JOLTS report come out this week, also known as the job openings report. The reason that one is important is because in a market... um, Where the Federal Reserve is essentially saying, hey, listen, we have two things that we're trying to measure here. Number one, inflation, and then number two, unemployment. We like to see unemployment potentially go up from the current metric it's at all the way to five. I believe it's at 3.5. They'd like to see it get closer to that five range. Because remember, if they're raising short term interest rates, they should stop money entering the system with us applying pressure to the inflation uh, metric and bringing it down. So you think from the manufacturing side of things, you're starting to see that constriction. So maybe you're seeing some of that already apply in there. The question is, has it made its way into the job markets yet, right? Are we starting to see layoffs? Are we starting to see people, um, you know, uh, quit, voluntary quits? What are we starting to see there? And then are we seeing that show up in the continued claims? And then are we also seeing that the unemployment numbers and the job openings numbers? So the job and all of that's coming out this week, which is why we're doing this. So in the job openings report... It came in a little stronger than expected uh, surprise, right? Um, this is for the month of April, the numbers that are being reported here. But in the month of April, there were more reported job openings than anticipated. and uh, and quite frankly, that number was up three hundred and fifty eight thousand total new job openings, pushing that total metric to over ten point one million in the month of April. Um, layoffs were down two hundred and sixty four thousand for uh, for layoffs and then voluntary quits were down fifty thousand. Now, what I take a look at this is that if we're if we're trying to constrict the labor market, right, if we're being the Federal Reserve, trying to constrict the labor market um, by increasing short-term rates and applying pressure to the financial system, you you'd start to think those job openings would also constrict. So it's kind of confusing that that hasn't shown up yet. And you wonder if that's maybe going to be revised later on, because there's a revision that'll come out on the May numbers here, and it'll show up in May numbers, hopefully. But then we get ADP and, you know, employment numbers in the private sector, and they were higher than expected. We expected 161,000 new private jobs to be created, and we got 278,000. So again, that's conflicting data um, with what we're trying to see. And honestly, I don't, I don't even know what's real in the job market anymore. Because ADP went back about eight months ago, I believe it was, yeah, in September and October, and they revised how they even report the numbers anymore. So, I mean, who's to say we don't have, we don't even have a historical account on this ADP employment and how it's being reported. So the real one that I think gets the most attention will be the BLS job reports, the non-farm payroll reports, and that comes out tomorrow morning um, at 830. And that'll be interesting. I mean, you know, I've heard from many people, we need a bad jobs report from the BLS report, meaning that we need it to come in below expectations, um, which is 190000 We need it to be lower than that, new jobs created. Um, and that's going to give us some signs that the job market's kind of constricting, which is what ultimately the Federal Reserve is wanting to see happening by a byproduct of raising interest rates. And, you know, the other thing is they measure is a weekly claims report. You know, every week people go to the unemployment line and those numbers are reported and then the initial jobless claims it was two hundred and thirty two thousand people going to the um, um, going to the uh, unemployment line with a continuing claim mean how many people are continuing to get those claims at one point seven nine five million about one point8 million people on there so that's people receiving unemployment but we know there are people not receiving unemployment that are voluntary or retired or the list goes on and on that number' at four million people right now so it's interesting to me that um, you know, what the Federal Reserve is attempting to do is not showing up in the current numbers yet. And what attempting to do is raise short-term interest rates and then also apply pressure to the financial system by raising that short-term interest rate and applying pressure towards companies saying, hey, listen, we can't create new jobs. We can't create new products. We can't create new manufacturers and new and new factories. And, and therefore, we don't need all the employees that we have and we can't create new jobs for those future employees. So on one hand, we can see the impact uh, of short-term interest rates being rise, or excuse me, being uh, uh, raised up. We're seeing that in the financial system. And what I mean by that is the banking system. You're seeing that on the deposit side of things because short-term interest rates are going up. You've got short-term interest such as like the 30-day T-bill, almost at six, it, it peaked at 6.1% on a 30-day T-bill earlier this week. So people are moving money from the banking system and they're putting it into a money market fund, thus applying pressure because when you go to the bank and you want to withdraw all your deposits, we saw what happened over at SVB, Signature Bank, First Republic. It does apply pressure at some level. Now, those were massive bank runs, but the reality is it's still applying pressure. And we produced a chart earlier last week that showed how much money is actually leaving the banking system and going into these money market funds. And you can see it literally, I mean, it literally happened right as the SVB situation happened. You see a ton of mass exodus over to the money market funds. Well, that's in combination with the rates getting pretty darn good on that side too, because there's not a bank that can pay you close to 6% for your deposits right now, because they can't go lend that money out and make money on that. So that's the, that's the financial pressure that's being put on as the Federal Reserve raises these rates. So that's one way. The other way is forcing companies to evaluate, am I... Am I going to go borrow money to create a new product, to start up a new manufacturing, to hire more jobs? Am I going to borrow it at this high interest rate that we're currently seeing right now? Probably not. So therefore, the impact of that is you're probably going to have to reduce the current labor force that you have, and that's how you able to sustain profit and able to answer to your shareholders. We haven't seen that show up yet. And I think that's one of the signs that, you know, Wall Street, the bond market, We're all anticipating to see, and we haven't seen it. So maybe we'll see it tomorrow. And by no means am I jumping up and down going, yay, people should get laid off. That's not what I'm saying. The impacts should start showing up, though, and they haven't shown up. So until those impacts show up, what I'm getting at is that on June 13th, when the Federal Reserve meets for the Federal Open Market Committee, there's a high probability they're going to raise rates again. We will not get another... Uh, inflationary reading until that day actually while they're in session while they're meeting that report comes out at 830 at the same time uh, that they'll make their announcement. so obviously they'll take that into consideration but you know barring a huge drop in the CPI. Uh, I don't see that that I don't see that they're not going to go ahead and raise rates a quarter now maybe even higher but uh, and I think that's what the markets think too that's why you're seeing it being priced in right now in a lot of the different mortgage-backed securities and also in the 10-year treasury as well. So know that's a lot of data. Um, And a lot of things we've thrown at you. But again, it was a busy week on the economic side of things. So again, thank you guys for listening, tuning in. If you like what you're hearing here, um, please. Five-star review us. Share the podcast. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, next week, we're going to have Daniel Halverson here with a lending update, which is probably going to cover a good a bit of what we did, plus the BLS jobs report, and then also the Federal Reserve meeting that's coming up here. I know he's got a lot of great stuff to add in there. So tune in for that one. And again, please share the podcast, five-star review it, and check us out on all of our social handles at What's Your One More with the number one, What's Your One More. Thanks again. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I when I said it. Now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put them all into it. Yeah.